You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, for the past few months, you've heard me talk about the 10th Collective. This is a new partnership initiative between Revision Path and State of Black Design. And we started the collective to pair black designers with companies that are looking to hire black designers. You know, both myself and Omari Souza, who heads up State of Black Design, we get approached by companies a lot about roles that they're trying to fill. And so we started this collective as a way to put them in touch with people that are looking for work. So if you're looking for your next opportunity, maybe you just were recently impacted by a layoff or you just want to see what else is out there. The 10th Collective is for you. It's free to join. All you have to do is fill out a short profile and you're all set. You'll only get contacted by companies when they are ready to talk to you. And at any point, you can hide your profile from companies or remain completely anonymous. The 10th Collective is meant to be a resource for you, whether you're looking for your next opportunity or not. So it's just really a great asset to kind of have in your back pocket for your career. If you want to join, head over to the10thcollective.com or you can check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important. And that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and some fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Reggie Tidwell. Reggie's the founder and creative director at Curve Theory and the founding president of AIGA Asheville in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is just a heads up. The audio in about the first 10 to 15 minutes is a little muffled. Uh, We ended up having to switch mics to get it better. So we couldn't unfortunately fix that in post, but you'll still be able to hear Reggie and hear our conversation. So let's sit back and start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, I'm Reggie Tidwell, and I am a graphic designer and a professional photographer, as well as a videographer, which I do on occasion as well. I tell stories. How's uh, the year been going for you so far? Wow, it has been a great year. Bought a house. Congratulations. Thank you. I um, also have, you know, continue. I had my best financial career last year. Uh, Everything has sort of culminated to that, and this year seems to be on track to even beat that. So uh, that's super exciting. Oh, that's real good. That's real good. I mean, even with all of that, is there anything like in particular that you want to try to accomplish before the year ends? Yeah. I mean, once you own a house, there's always, there's always house <laughs> stuff that you want to accomplish. But professionally, man, things have just been falling into place in, in sort of a beautiful way that I feel just very excited. I'm going to be doing all of the photography for, um, so I'm a huge fan of the outdoors and nature, landscape photography. I do a lot of that for Explore Asheville, which is our big tourism division here in in Asheville. And the Great Smoky Mountain Association has reached out and they're going to have me do all the photography for their new book on Cades Cove, which is a really beautiful spot in the Smokies. So if you've ever been to Great Smoky Mountain National Park, it's, you know, like our biggest and most visited national park in the in the country and it's absolutely gorgeous but uh i'm super excited i'm going to be doing all the photos for the book so i'll get a book cred oh nice congratulations on that thank you sir let's talk about your company curve theory now curve theory has been around for over 20 years which i definitely have to tip my hat to you i i ran a studio for nine years and I know how much goes into that. So mm-hmm. twenty over 20 years, I think, what, 21 mm-hmm. now, right? 21, 21. years? 21. I'm in my 21st year. Yeah. yeah. What's been the key to your longevity? You know, quite honestly, it's building relationships. You know, I've never advertised. It's It really is. 
a combination of building relationships and being passionate about the work that I do. I love design and photography. I love being a creative. I love people. And so it just makes sense that I would be able to maintain this business because it's all the things that I love and things that I would be doing anyway. I'm always building relationships. You know, I always tell people, you know, and I always think it's kind of a funny little bit of a factoid about me. I don't typically just add people on Facebook that I don't know. And I've got like 3000 plus connections on Facebook and every single one of them is someone that I know I had either a meaningful conversation with in a line somewhere or they're friends in real life or they I served on a board with them or or whatever the case may be. They're all real connections. And, you know, when you think about that, that's a lot of exponentially, you know, the more people, you know, the sort of more you can grow your network. This business for me is really about it's, it's about being present and available. That's really good for Facebook. Like, I, I think Facebook and probably a lot of social media networks now have really enabled this way to sort of just collect friends, almost like you're, mm -hmm. I don't know, collecting <laughs> trading cards or something like that without really sort of like having any sort of intentionality behind it. Like the way that you're like about the way that you're about connections on Facebook, that's how I am on LinkedIn. Like I'm really like, unless I've worked with you or I know you personally or, or something like that. Like we met at a conference or something. We've had a conversation. That's usually the only way that I'll add people. Although now lately I have gotten a little lax and well, partly because I let them like stack up. So like I'll, I'll go months without adding anyone on LinkedIn. And all of a sudden I've got a hundred connections. I'm like, Oh, I should probably go through these and yeah. <laughs> see who I know. And I tell people like write a note to let me know like how we know each other. And I mean, some of them are just sales calls and, and what have mm -hmm. you, but Most, um, so many of those. Yeah. But in terms of like the power of the network, like I, I got laid off recently and I posted, I think two posts on LinkedIn about it. And I was flabbergasted by how my network showed up and like spread the word and put me in connection with other people. And I've had some great conversations and such. So, you know, That's amazing. Yeah. There's, there's a, author Porter Gale, who says your network is your net worth. I totally believe uh, that. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. I get so much business from those connections on Facebook. I mean, quite honestly, it's just doing stuff like, you know, especially from the photography side of my business, I'll post a photo and I'm constantly posting photos. And then, and I do also on LinkedIn, ultimately what ends up happening is because you're constantly putting content out when someone thinks of photography and someone says, Hey, do you know a great photographer? You should be in someone's very short list of their mental Rolodex. Uh -huh. uh, and that's what happens. I get calls all the time. Hey, so-and-so I, you know, I mentioned on Facebook that I was looking for a, a drone photographer or a lifestyle photographer, or a commercial photographer, whatever. And they, they mention you. Yeah. What's a typical day look like for you? So for me, it's kind of nice being a designer and a photographer um, because on any given day, I never know. It could bring me being out in the field on a photo shoot. It could bring me, you know, in a brand strategy session with a client or uh, a discovery session with a new branding client, whatever it is. It's kind of nice because my days aren't always the same. I get to travel. I get to like, for instance, tomorrow I'm going to be in another area of North Carolina for a commercial shoot for pretty much much of the day, starting at Golden Hour. And it's nice. And then Friday, I'm in the studio all day, probably editing photos from that shoot and rounding out a logo for another client. So you include your photography as like part of your design service, or I guess company services, I should say. Kind of. It's occasionally the two will intertwine. Usually the two intertwine when I'm doing web design. So if I'm designing a website for a client, a lot of times because I'm, you know, I know exactly what kind of images the client needs. I can add it as part of my service to do a lifestyle shoot of their company of their clientele. And then that can get baked into their website and I'm working with my own images. I can control the look and feel a lot more effortlessly that way. But yeah, it happens. It doesn't happen as much because I don't do as much web design as I used to. I'm probably doing about two or three sites a year where I used to do quite a bit. Yeah. Back when I had my studio, 
I kind of wound things down from the design end, I'd say roughly around like in the mid 2010s, because there was certainly like a market for like bespoke web design. They want people wanted a particular, you know, website theme or something like that. Mm -hmm. But now with all these website builders out here, people are sort of taking the design element or at least the modular parts of the design process into their own hands. And it's like, yeah, I don't really need bespoke anymore. And so I ended up doing more like <laughs> consulting because it just, you know, you were able to kind of shift like that. So it's interesting now because like I'm looking for work at the moment and people are like, oh, can you redesign a website? I'm like, ah, I mean, <laughs> I haven't done it in a long time. Maybe. Right. I mean, right. I'm probably not your first choice for that, but I, I get what you mean. People, they hear design. And of course, if you have an online presence and a website, that's kind of like, the first thing they think about is like, oh, can you design a website or can you redesign a website? I think depending on the client, I do still see value in bespoke. I feel like ultimately I'll end up doing a completely custom website where I'll get to work with a developer and I'll design the front end and we can work beautifully and make something really amazing. But that doesn't happen as often as I would like. But I do find the builders have actually worked for me because especially if you know them, you know, there's like Divi and Elementor and there's a handful of other ones. I've been using Divi for a while and though it can be a little bit verbose in its code, I find that the flexibility of me being able to do something completely custom using mostly their, just you doing custom CSS to some of their built-in modules. So I can build the content and lay out the content really quickly, then go in with CSS and like really start to fine tune and make it exactly what I want it to be. That's kind of a nice, because I do work with very large clients and also small clients. That's a really nice option for clients that they, they don't have six to 10 grand in their pocket to do a website. They, you know, they're, it's just nice to have that as an option and for them to still get something that's custom. Yeah. Speaking of which, what are the best types of clients for you to work with? You know, quite honestly, I've got a soft spot for the like mom and pop, you know, shops. This either they're startups or they are, you know, they've been around for a while and it's time to sort of change things up. I love that transition of being able to help them sort of renew their own passion in their business through that process. I'm working on the branding right now for an auction house that's been around for decades. They've been on Antique Roadshow, so they've got a presence, but their their brand look is a bit dated, and they've kind of started resting in the laurels a little bit because everything is just so like tried and true. It is what it is. It's been what it's been, and they realize it's time to shake things up a little bit. They want to expand their market a little bit. They want to, and so going through that process with them, it's so rewarding because they've been living with the same logo for. 20 years, you know, and it's like, or longer, you know, mm -hmm. and to be able to see them embrace something that's different. And, you know, it's a fun process too with this particular client because they were like, yeah, we want something completely modern and avant-garde. And, and I went there, and they were like, oh no, we love it, but that's like, we're not ready yet, you know? And so I'm like, okay, that's good. At least I know what your comfort level is. And so now I can dial it back and land exactly where we need to be and then feeling them working through the resistance but then initially not only acceptance but like oh my god this is amazing this is going to be really great for our company we're excited you know that's a great feeling so like when a a project let's, let's say you know like comes in your inbox or something like that what does your process look like when it comes to starting on new work so i usually have just a quick little meeting with the client just to sort of qualify whether or not we're going to work well together and whether I'm the guy for the job. But then once that decision is made, I set up a discovery session where we really actually start to dig deep into, you know, it's the typical discovery questionnaire where you learn a little bit more about their business, their aspirations, what's working, what's not working. So I can better provide exactly what they're looking for. I feel like and for me, anyway, I feel like the key to being a good designer that makes happy clients and and solves the right problems or solves problems in the right way is asking the right questions at the very beginning. So I'm all about being inquisitive. I want to know everything. And if you feel like it's too much, it's not. 
Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, when I'm digging into sketching out logo concepts or I'm coming up with a tagline or whatever, it's, it's that information that I'm going to be so thankful that I have it because I can go through and dig in for inspiration to kind of recheck the direction I'm going to make sure I'm headed in the right, I'm headed the right way. But yeah, it's all about the Q and a, the beginning. So I see here on your website that you do a lot of volunteer work. You work also with uh, Leaf Community Arts. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Leaf Community Arts for me was a big part of, you know, I, I did service work before that, but it was probably to date was probably one of the biggest chapters in my life in terms of giving back. Leaf Community Arts is a a nonprofit here in the Asheville area that they have uh, teaching artists that go into the public school system and the neighborhood centers and basically uh, recreation centers. And they work with youth, teaching them poetry, dance, how to play the djembe, uh, how to uh, do different types of, of art, visual art. It's pretty amazing, and it gives kids like this sense of ownership of something, which I think is quite necessary, especially for the age range of students that they work with. But then they also have this other part that I was actually more aligned with was their, uh, they do cultural preservation in First Nations, like third world countries, like uh, Bekwe and Uganda and Rwanda and Cuba, all these different places where there are cultures that have been around for ages and First Nations tribes that, you know, as the youth are becoming more westernized and the elders are dying off, these cultures are just vanishing. There's no evidence of like their songs or instrument making or costumes or any of it. And so what Leaf Community Arts did, what they were partnered with an agency on the ground that was trying to do that cultural preservation and help raise money to do things like build recording studios or hire artisans that know the native language, the native songs, the instrument making, the dances. And they actually make it really cool for the youth where they're like putting their phones down and totally engaging and dancing and singing. And I found that particularly interesting. I love the beauty of cultures and how uh, different cultures are and how you can learn something completely eye-opening and different from a culture that you never, you know, had experienced before. And now are you still doing work with them? I know that now you're also the new president of, uh, of AIGA Asheville, the founding president, but have you kind of waned your work with the, with Leaf Community Arts? I have still, uh, still a supporter of it. I worked all the way up to my presidency in 2017 and then my term ended, so I'm now board president emeritus. I'm still, you know, the Leaf Community Arts people or family. They actually put on a huge music festival three times a year. You know, I've met Arrested Development, Speech. You know, we know each other by by name. I've met, uh, I mean, gosh, we've had uh, Angelique Kijo and Mavis Staples and Indigo Girls and all these amazing bands that have come and played the Family Stone but they put on this music festival in the spring and in the fall in this really beautiful place out in Black Mountain called Black Mountain, North Carolina, called Lake Eden. And then they do one in downtown Asheville in the summer. And that basically raises money for all of the work that I mentioned before that they do with uh, cultures and with the youth. Oh, nice. Nice. And we'll talk more about your AIGA Asheville work a little bit later on in the interview with everything that you do through Curve Theory, like what gets you truly excited about your work? Man, I love to solve problems, quite honestly. I love working with clients and trying to find out exactly what's not working with them and helping come up with solutions that, one, inspire and excite them, but then also they sort of continue to propel me forward in my love of the work that I'm doing. Now, let's kind of dive a little bit into your your personal story. You talk about this, I think, a bit on your website, but you grew up in St. Louis. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Born and raised. Yeah. Tell me about that. So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I 
was raised mostly by my grandmother, an amazing dad too that was also in the picture. But most of my time was spent with my grandmother who was an educator. She taught for 36 years and she was just, she, she was a huge supporter of education. And so, and, you know, in the summers where all my friends were out like playing and running around, I had to do homework before I could go out and join them. <laughs> and of course I hated it then, but on some level I understood the importance of it and it would come into play in many periods throughout my life, just being someone that is sort of studious. I ended up testing the highest in the seventh grade in in language and math in the entire school that I was in in seventh, wow. seventh grade, which like that, that said a lot about my grandmother's dedication and how she worked it with me. But she, you know, it wasn't with a heavy hand. You know, she just understood that she wanted me. I grew up in a very, I would say, I mean, just put it blank, put it bluntly. It was a poor neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of gang violence, a lot of uh, break-ins and, and theft. And, you know, I, I saw some pretty horrific things in just in my own neighborhood, just in my own alley, you know, it was, it wasn't a place that I wanted to definitely grow up and, and grow old. And so education for me was the key of being able to get to a more ideal situation. And so I was, I wouldn't say I was a first generation college student. My mother had a degree in music, actually two. She had one in music and art, possibly three, maybe in education. But my grandmother, of course, was educated. And so it set me on my path to discover who I really wanted to be in the world. I think you had mentioned very briefly, you know, like what made me like, you know, what what was it that made me choose this path of design? But all that didn't come quite easily. I ended up pretty much blowing away my first couple years in St. Louis at a junior college called Florissant Valley. Mm-hmm. I think I had like a 1.9 GPA because I wasn't inspired. I picked business administration because I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. But, you know, you're asking a 18-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid to decide what they want to do for the rest of their life. And, you know, yeah, of course, I, I want to run a business. So, oh, yeah, business administration, that's what you should do. But that's such a broad topic. I wasn't inspired. I actually went from that student. At one point, I was the student in the back of the class, nodding off, not very inspired. I would, uh, you know, the teacher would call on me and not only did I not know the answer to the question, I wouldn't even know what the question was because I was probably asleep. <laughs> so I ended up taking a, a break after, after four semesters of that. I said, you know, I got to do better. This, this isn't going the way I wanted to go. So I ended up taking a semester off and really doing some deep diving and soul searching. I talked to my counselor at the school. I really thought long and heavy about what I liked and the things that I knew I, I liked were being creative. You know, I was always drawing, drawing from the time I could hold a pencil. I was, you know, sketching and doodling. And so I always loved art. My mom was an artist, is an artist. And so that was an inspiration. And so I went back to school. I decided at the time that I wanted to be an interior designer or a architect. And the path to both of those were mechanical drawing and, and, you know, a lot of drafting. And so that was all I needed to be inspired. I went from that student that I mentioned before to the student making the top score on every test in every class until I graduated. I went from a 1.9 GPA to a 3.2 GPA, graduated with honors and got my general transfer studies to go on to a four-year college. I know there's that sort of saying that goes like sometimes you have to do things that you don't necessarily want to do to try to get to do the things that you do want to do. But, you know, I think also to that end of just kind of from what you're mentioning, like that whole period of like high school going into college, there's so much pressure to try to like decide exactly what it is you're going to do. And I mean, we also, I think, have to put this within the context of just kind of where the world was at this time, because I'm I'm guessing this is like around like early 90s. Yeah, like early 90s. And like there was just this push. I mean, and I was 
So, I mean, I was in elementary school then, but I mean, still there was like this push to know exactly what it is that you're going to do with your life at a fairly early age. Like, look at the state of the world with what's going on. What is it that you want to do? And for a lot of people, it's tough. Like, I, I mean, even when I started out in college, I ended up switching majors because I thought I wanted to do one thing just based on, you know, societal norms and such. And then I was like, eh, I don't really like it. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's a big part of it. I mean, that's, I mean, thinking about it, like nowadays students take what they call a gap year. Mm-hmm. I'm a firm supporter of that because I do feel like somebody that young needs to kind of go out into the world a little bit and understand who they are. I mean, up to that point, they've just been a student studying all the basic electives. There's nothing in that that would potentially produce like career inspirations, you know, like maybe you like math or maybe you like biology, but that doesn't necessarily mean you want to be a mathematician or, or a scientist or a biologist, you know? Right. So, yeah, I feel like that would have served me well, but thankfully I was able to make that comeback and find that inspiration. You ended up going to Maryville University of St. Louis, and there you sort of studied graphic design. Like, Talk to me about that time. So, yeah. So actually, Maurice, I started, remember I said I was sort of interested in just interior design or architecture. Yeah. That's what got me to Maryville because they actually had a, a nice interior design program. And I got there in those first two years, I thrived. I still, you know, I was still inspired and I was still being a great student and loving the experience. But at one point, I got right. So we, the way uh, Maryville's program was set up at the time, which you did all your art electives and got all those out of the way the first and your art electives as well. You got those out of the way the first two years mm-hmm. and then you dove into your concentration. Right as I was about to make that transition, I talked to my counselor, Nancy Rice at the time. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to do interior design. You know, I like the sketching part. I like the conceptualizing but then it's all like floor plans and elevations and and it gets super technical. And that's the part that that's kind of where I get lost. And this particular teacher who I, it is funny because I'll tell you this in a second. She basically told me, you know, Reggie, you're, you know, you're great at computers. You love computers. I've been working on computers since I was 15. My grandmother bought me a, a Commodore 64 and I was doing, I was programming in basic. I was playing games. I was, I became very comfortable in that sort of computer world, the nerd, you know, the, the invention of the nerd. <laughs> I um, took that as a compliment. She's like, yeah, you're, you're big into computers. And then she said, and you also love art. So you should consider graphic design. And for me, that was a new term. I, I, you know, hadn't thought about it. And once I did the, the exploration and, and thought about it and understood what graphic design was and understood that I'd already seen it all around me all the time already and thought about how I could be someone contributing to that. Yeah. I was like, you're, you're exactly right. This is exactly what I want to do. And that's where it started. I feel like I feel really fortunate that I'm someone who got a degree in something that I'm actually still doing. (laughs) I guess it was a few years ago. I reached out to her because we're friends on Facebook I thanked her. I didn't remember if I'd ever thanked her, but my whole career came from that decisive moment where she told me about something I didn't know about, and then I ran with it. And I'm trying to think, like, I'm trying to to sort of place this in time, because we talked earlier about sort of like early 90s. So this is like mid-90s or so. Mid-90s, yep, mid-90s. Yeah, when you're studying Graduating with my BFA in graphic design in uh, December of 97. Okay. Tell me what it was like studying design back then, because you also have like the big advent of the personal computer. You've got the the sort of coming of the Internet as we know it. Like, what was it like studying design during that time? Man, it was wild. I mean, first and foremost, we're working on like Apple Performa 4500s, I think was the model number. Wow. Uh, and I mean, these things were tanks and dinosaurs, you know, like you, <laughs> you could have Photoshop open only or Illustrator, but not both. <laughs> you, you know, we're, we're talking like 32 megabytes of, of RAM, <laughs> like, and 
I mean, lots of crashes. So you had to frequently save your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we definitely did some. We definitely did some cut and paste stuff because that was just not too far out of the the rear view mirror that people were still making the migration to computers. So there was still a lot of manual, like cut and copy and paste, cut and paste design, a lot of a lot of assemblage, a lot of that stuff was still going on. So of course it was part of our curriculum. And I'll tap into my sort of photography side as well. I always find it a little bit of a, for me, like sort of a, I paid my dues. It was sort of a rite of passage that I actually got to do photography. I had to, I got to take photos using film and understand the value of the frame, you know, and not just taking 450 shots and hoping there's a good one in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then actually developing my film in the dark room. All that stuff was happening around the same time, which all feels, of course, very archaic now. But, you know, that was the start. That was what it was like back then. I mean, it sounds like it was just really hands on because the computer couldn't do everything. I mean, it could do some things, but you still, like you said, had to do copy and paste or cut and paste, or you still had to take photos and develop them yourself. Like, it's so wild now when I think about digital cameras, because I remember in high school having fun saver cameras. Like you go to the you go, you go to the party, you have your fun saver camera, you take all kind of shots. You don't know what you're going to get back until you get it back from, you know, Eckerd or, or wherever that you got them developed at. But like, yeah. And I took a photography course back then, too. So I know about developing the darkroom and stuff, which now seems like it's funny. I'll I'll watch a movie or something and they always paint it as like this. I don't know, old school way of doing things, you know, like developing. And it's not that far, not that far away from now. No, no. And honestly, it's become sort of a a niche for some people. I know a lot of people that actually, I say a lot, but a handful of people that are still shooting film and still developing in that handful of dark rooms that are left. And it's something I think maybe they embrace it, not because they're too stubborn to like switch to digital, but it's, it's kind of a craft for them. Some of them are people that have embraced digital, but they also still really love film. I admire that. I think it's great. I don't miss it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't miss the smelling, the smell of fixer. And and, yeah. And not knowing what you're going to get until you are dropping it into the developer and hoping that you nailed it. Yeah. I could imagine like even doing design back then because computers were changing and software was changing and everything like were there were there trends back then i'm just curious because i feel like a lot of stuff still carried over from print but were there Mm -hmm. specific like graphic design trends that you remember from back then yeah i mean i think there was a time where like decorative fonts were really like starting to sort of become prevalent Mm -hmm. and you started i mean this was quite honestly I think this was when like fonts like Hobo were actually still being used. Oh, wow. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And Papyrus. Yeah. Just, you know, like I, I feel like there was a exploration. This was fonts just sort of exploded sort of with the advent of the, with the advent of the computer. Like fonts started off like sort of trickling in and then they sort of exploded. And I think designers had to be really disciplined to not, I feel like, most designers were kind of going really far out and doing using all these sort of crazy decorative fonts and, you know, still having their design disciplines about them. So they may only use one decorative font and a nice sans serif that balanced it. But those fonts were not elegant <laughs> at all. And, it, you know, of course, depending on what you were trying to do with it. And I think what has happened, we've seen from a time where people were trying to get away from using the sort of tried and true fonts, the Adobe Garamon, the Futura, people were feeling like those were overused or they were too, too, too uh, basic. And so they had to kind of expand their, their, their typeface horizons. And then I find these days, man, some of the best brands sort of go back to basics and, are going back to some of those tried and true fonts and and looking for things that are a little more elegant. I didn't even think about the proliferation of typefaces as like 
something that was part of design back then, but it it was. I mean, oh, really, yeah. because you had, of course, greater displays that were coming out. And you could just do more than what you could do with print in terms of the types of typefaces. You just had different I things. I think it was like so many people were used to like doing manual like print design. And then all of a sudden you got access to 3000 fonts. <laughs> like, you know, hold me back. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. So you, you graduate from Maryville. You're out there in the real world as a designer what was that early kind of post-grad career like? Like, talk to me about that. So the first thing I did, so going back to the whole wanting to be an entrepreneur thing, I, that still was in me. I still definitely wanted to have my own business. And I started actually working with clients before I graduated. I just, you know, I, I worked at Office Depot, so I met a lot of people and there were people coming in that needed business cards, but they were really awful designs that they had, or they didn't have one at all. And I said, well, you know, this is what I do. So I started developing a clientele before I even graduated and then spent the first year post-grad being an entrepreneur, you know, working in the basement of the apartment that I lived, at the, at, lived in at the time. And it was actually a townhome doing branding work and, it was mostly just branding and identity systems that I was doing early on. But about a year into that, being someone that's super social, I started to get that cabin fever and, you know, wasn't around people as much as I'd like to be. And so I had a side job working at Circuit City. And on one particular day, I, I was just sort of venting about, man, I really want to, I think I want to work in an agency or a, a company. And there was a guy by the name of Mike, whose dad headed up a division of Lydon Industries, which Lydon is a Fortune 500 company. And they had a division in St. Louis called PRC. Um, the acronym got dissolved. So I don't know what it ever originally meant, but mm -hmm. that's it was Lydon PRC. Anyway, they were hiring a, a resident graphic designer. And at the time, and you'll appreciate this uh, in terms of uh, historical relevance in, in the design and web design world, <laughs> they uh, had a Macromedia authorized training facility. And they, I got the interview, got the job. They wanted me to teach Flash and Fireworks. So, oh, wow. Right? So I ended up working, being the only guy in St. Louis teaching Flash through a Macromedia authorized program. And so that really just kicked off all kinds of just awesome awesomeness in my career. Oh, I know you were in high demand back high demand. then because Flash was everywhere, everywhere. Everywhere and everything. And that was right at the onset of its popularity. So I stayed with that company for about a year. Ended up, you know, gosh, being in, in a big metropolitan area, teaching Flash was awesome. So I ended up getting hired away by a information graphics company called Explain. And I ended up being their interactive team leader. That was pretty exciting. Did that. Ended up teaching at Washington University while I was there because the art and design faculty at Washington University wanted to learn Flash. I did a summer workshop for the art and design faculty they loved it so much, they invited me to create a multimedia class as part of their visual communications curriculum based on Flash and other like video and, and other multimedia applications. And that was amazing. And I ended up partnering with a lot of design agencies in the St. Louis area, fairly large agencies, because they didn't have like a web team or division. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of cool. I ultimately got laid off from X-Plane. They went through four rounds of layoffs. I went in the last round, and because they still needed the work that I did, they became my first client. So that's how I started Curve Theory in 2000 and, or in uh, 2001. It was just one of those things. Like I was still popular. The work was still necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, the company was needing to make some pivots, and that was kind of a blessing on my end because I always wanted to have my own business business. And that's how it happened. I started, I launched Curve Theory with them as my first client 21 years ago. Nice. I mean, I can't think of a better way to kind of roll into entrepreneurship like that. You were already 
super highly sought out for your design work in another medium. The company you're working with goes out of business. You start your own business. Like that's perfect. That's a perfect handoff. Yeah, it was. And thanks. They didn't go out of business. Thankfully, they did go back to their original like third. They, I think they grew to like 45 employees at one point, but they went mm-hmm. back to the original 13 and they're still around today and they're still they're still thriving. But yeah, it's like getting kicked out of the nest, but then given a nice little mattress to land on, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it was great. And I really love St. Louis, but I definitely knew that at some point I was going to want to leave St. Louis. So what brought you to North Carolina? So at the time, the woman that I was dating was also in that same headspace that she was ready to leave St. Louis. I was still teaching at Washington University and had actually just been encouraged by the design chair, the art and design faculty chair, to apply for this tenure track position that was opening up in the art and design department. And so I was at this sort of crossroads where in my heart, I knew I I really didn't want to stay in St. Louis that much longer. Things I had envisioned leaving St. Louis almost as soon as I graduated, but things sort of kept falling into place Mm -hmm. career wise, which was great because those things were setting me up. But at one point, my partner and I, ex-partner and I were having these frequent conversations about where we would ever relocate to. And at one point, I mentioned that a good buddy of mine had, in passing, talked about moving to North Carolina. And so I asked her, like, what do you know about North Carolina? And she said, oh, my God, Asheville. Asheville is absolutely amazing. You would love it. It's Check it out. And, of course, since we had the web, then I looked it up. And, I mean, I think within 20 minutes, I knew it's where I wanted to be. It wasn't landlocked. There's a four-hour drive to the ocean, mountains, waterfalls, streams, everywhere, hiking trails, mountain bike trails, you name it. That's the kind of guy that I was. I mean, thankfully I had a father who raised me in my time, the time I spent with him, we would go camping and hiking. And so early on, I garnered a a love or appreciation of the outdoors. And so you had the job that kind of allowed you to do this sort of work from anywhere. So why not go to a place you really want to go? Absolutely. I actually finished my I had to finish that first semester at Washington University, and then I had the whole spring semester. So this was in 2023. Loved that semester, loved my students, uh, finished that semester, turned in my grades in May, and the following weekend was Memorial Day weekend. I literally moved a week after I turned in my grades and never looked back. (laughs) Wow. And you've been there ever since. And been there ever since. Yeah, you've been a part of the Asheville design community now for such a long time. You know, you mentioned your community work earlier, and you're the founding president of AIGA Asheville, a new chapter. What was kind of behind bringing an AIGA chapter to Asheville? That's a great question, Maurice. So for me, one of the things I did mention that I was on the board for the St. Louis chapter in the in the mix there. I think I joined the chapter while I was, might have been while I was still at uh, Layton PRC, but I know I did like two or three years on the board as their web chair for the St. Louis chapter. And I really love that sort of community of design, the camaraderie, the people that you surround yourself with, understand your day-to-day trials and tribulations, like they, they get it. So that was, you know, I really appreciated that as it pertained to the design community in St. Louis. And I got to Asheville and we didn't have that. You know, as a matter of fact, I was trying to find designers just to connect with, just to network with, and they they just weren't around. I think maybe I I think I had like maybe three or four design friends at the time. But we knew there were more designers in and around the area. There just wasn't anything in place to help bring them out, you know, out of the mm-hmm. woodworks. And so we had a lot of early conversations about, you know, I would reach out to these other designers that I knew in the area and tell them how much I wanted to have a chapter in Asheville because the closest chapters were in Knoxville and Charlotte. Mm-hmm. It's a couple hour drive each way and in either direction. And so for me, it just 
kind of selfishly, I'm like, God, I want that here. You know, I don't want to have to drive two hours to like have community. You know, it took a while. Originally, you had to have 40 sustaining members just to even be considered to have a chapter. And I think given the fact that we were having a hard time finding 20 designers in, in Asheville at the time, that was a tall order. So we ended up creating this thing called Design Salon, which ended up being just sort of kind of like a hang for designers in the area. And the more people gathered, the more the word got spread out and the more designers you realized were here. You know, the more you understood that there were some really talented people that were in Asheville. And because Asheville is such a draw for people kind of all over the world, somebody that's here now probably wasn't here two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. That's just how it, that's how it works. There was a woman uh, named Jenny Fares, who's also a really good friend of mine, that took Design Salon and started adding programming to it, and that made it even better. And so the more programs she added, the better, the more it had an actual format. Instead of just being a, a creative hangout, the more I saw that we were there, you know, it was mm-hmm. fun. And so 2019 was when I had sort of a feasibility, like, meeting. I just called a bunch of people that I knew and they invited other people. And I said, Hey, I I think it's time to finally start a chapter. I didn't actually know the requirements had changed in my mind. I was still thinking 40 sustaining members. So half the way through, we, we learned that it was only 20 sustaining members, but we actually turned in our petition to become a chapter with 43 sustaining members. I think nice. Just because we are a little bit of a smaller city and I wanted to show how much, how bad we really wanted to be a chapter. And yeah. And from that first meeting, I, I was able to build our first board of really awesome and engaged founding board members. So yeah, we started literally the year before the pandemic and have thrived through the pandemic and we're still kicking it. That is amazing. That's amazing to hear that. And now when you say sustaining members, is that like members at a particular membership tier? Because I feel like they had that at one, like, I feel like sustaining was one of the, if not the top, but one of the top like tiers you had to have. Yeah, I think design leader was the one after that. I think the sustaining member was the, was at the $250 giving Mm -hmm. up. And then it went to design leader, which doubled to 500. Yeah. so. That is kind of, especially for a professional association, that is, that was kind of a lot to ask, but I was just elated that that many people wanted it too and believed in us having a chapter that much that they signed up. We still have a tremendous amount of sustaining members. We probably have more sustaining members than we have at any other given level. And they have changed the price structure and mm-hmm. the names of the giving levels a bit. And so it's, you know, I think easier now than ever to join the AIGA. And I feel like they that was part of the reason behind just sort of making it a little simpler, especially after the, the pandemic. Yeah. But yeah, it's quite wonderful to be in a city that now has a chapter. We have great programming. We're putting on our first design weekend, which is kind of like a mini design week that's coming up at the end of the month. The oh, first, very nice. Yeah. First weekend of October. So it's September 30th through October 2nd. Super excited about that. We got David Carson coming to speak at our annual meeting in November. That's going to be pretty cool. Mr. Masterclass himself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we're happy to have a chapter and we're happy to be able to have such a positive impact on our design community. And that's that means everything for me. When you look back, like at your career and all your experiences, like, is this how you imagine yourself when you were a kid in St. Louis? No. Not at all. And it's funny because I think being a kid in St. Louis and growing up where I grew up, I feel like my grandmother knew and saw my potential, but I didn't see it because it's kind of hard. Like I'm surrounded by the things that I was surrounded by. And I think it's kind of hard to see the forest, see the, see the forest through the trees when you're in that kind of scenario. And for me, I don't think... Honestly, I still get surprised. I think at some point in your life, Maurice, when you've when you've accomplished a lot, when you've done a lot, when you've had this longevity of of experiences and learning, 
you at some point you start to realize that people see that in you and they see all the experience and all the leadership and the guidance and they start to seek it out. You know, I get called to to be on boards, to be on, I turned down probably seven board positions last year. I'm publicly a leader. And so I think it still surprises me sometimes where, and I think it also surprises me that sometimes somebody asks me a question and I think I'm still that like 25 year old that's, that's in school and still on his path, figuring things out and learning and discovering but then I start to answer, the, I hear the question, and then my head just gets filled with all of this relevant information that you don't even really think about. You're not just sitting around thinking about all the stuff you know, but when someone calls and asks for mentoring or it's a it's a colleague that's, you know, you're just kind of shooting the breeze with, you start to realize how much of that stuff is in there. And it's quite amazing. What gives you purpose to keep doing the work that you do now? I think for me, it's those, it's those relationships and experiences. I've always said that if I won the lottery and had all the money that I would ever need, I would still be a designer. I would still do design. I would just pick a, you know, I would just do mostly nonprofit work and do it pro bono and just take a select number of projects a year. I love the work. I'm passionate about the work and I'm passionate about the people that I get to work with. I'm very particular about the clients. Like if a client doesn't seem like they're the right fit or I'm not going to have a mutually enjoyable experience, then, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll pass. I'll pass on the project. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty thankful to be in a place in my career where I can do that. What advice would you give for someone who they're listening to this interview, they're hearing how you've come up throughout your career, what advice would you give somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps? I would say, you know, and I, I, I talk to young people all the time. I actually mentor. And the thing that I feel like is the most important is to really keep exploring who you are and what you like and don't follow the money. I feel like it's very easy to, I'll talk back to a time in my life when I worked at Office Depot when I was Florissant Valley in junior college, I was asked to get into the managerial track, you know, at Office Depot, mm-hmm. where at the time I might have made, once becoming a manager, I may have made like $35,000 or $30,000, which at the time seemed like a lot of money. And that's like, that's a very easy distraction. That's a very easy temptation And I had a friend at the time who also was a really, really talented artist. He also was wanting to go to design school. He ended up getting in that track and hated it. It just completely dominated his life. He wasn't fulfilled. The money at some point wasn't even relevant because he never had time to spend any of it because he worked so much. I turned it down because I knew at the, so this, I I think at this point I was already at uh, Maryville University. So I was already in the graphic design program. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So in order to get to that point, you have to do some self-exploration. You have to understand who you are, what it is that you really value and set your sights on being able to do that for a living and like, don't waver. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what sort of work would you like to be doing? Man, I would love to retire in five years. <laughs> I'm 51, so that's definitely a tall order. But in a perfect world, I'm like completely crush it for the next, you know, five, six years or so and retire, you know, early or at least partially retire. Mm-hmm. But I do see myself in leadership. I do see myself still trying to bring positive change to communities in whatever way I can through social social justice, through design leadership, through I've hinted at the thought of of being it's been mentioned and it's been a converse internal conversation and conversation I've had with colleagues about the sort of AIGA trajectory and perhaps maybe serving on a national board at some point. 
you know, I have friends on the national board. I, I love the organization and I love what the organization provides to the design community. And I always see its potential is like limitless. Mm-hmm. And to be able to serve in that world at a higher level, definitely. But yeah, that's probably something that I would look to within my five-year trajectory. And, you know, more than anything, I always want to make sure that the work that I'm doing continues to be meaningful. I think you should definitely consider it. I mean, I've done work for the at the volunteer level, at the national level, and it's great. It's been great. I, I highly think you should do it. And I'm sure other people have probably mentioned this to you as well, but there's a book in your story. There's 100% a book in your story. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's outright said that, but I definitely know there's stuff in there that's, I always find it intriguing to look back in my past and see where I've been and where I am and and how I've been inspired and how I'm now able to inspire. That all is important to me. But yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah, no, there's 100% a book in your story. I mean, one, I think just because of how you have managed yourself through how design and technology have changed. But then also, I think your personal story added in as a layer on top of that. And with the work that you're doing now through volunteering and giving back, like, that's a bestseller. You might want to think uh, about it. You might want to think about it. I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there. Uh, thanks, You'll get the first copy for sure. Uh, <laughs> well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work online? Absolutely. So curvetheory.com, C-U-R-V-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y.com is my commercial website. There is a link to my print work on there, which, you know, yeah, prints are great. But if you want to see the sort of bulk of my commercial photography, landscape stuff, nature and cityscapes, that's a good place to go. I also am on Instagram, Curve Theory on Instagram. And there, I don't really put a whole lot of design work. on. I do have a separate account that I'm hoping to start building up my, like putting all my design work on. But really photography, years ago, I had a mix of photography and design. And it always just kind of felt all over the place for me. And one of the things I always notice when I go to other Instagram accounts and I see these really nicely curated feeds that everything just there's like there's just something nice about the continuity and you're Mm -hmm. like those beautiful landscapes and then there's a logo it just feels (laughs) so i took all my design stuff off of there and it's just my photography on uh, my instagram account Uh, but those are the best places to find me and i'm also on linkedin reggie tidwell on linkedin all right sounds good well reggie tidwell i want to thank you so much for coming on the show I mean, of course, like I just mentioned about there's a book in you, your story and the passion and the service that you've given back to the design community is something that I think is really inspiring for a lot of people, certainly your local community. But I hope that people that listen to this interview also pick up on that as well, because, you know, you mentioned being raised by your your grandmother and, and her being a teacher. Those values that she instilled in you, you're continuing to give those back out to the community, which are really the basis of your success. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I 100% agree about my grandmother. And thank you so much for having me on, Maurice. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Big, big thanks to Reggie Tidwell. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more information about Reggie and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. 
Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd always love to hear from you. So please hit us up on social media. We are on both Twitter and Instagram. All you have to do is search for revision path, just all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become. And the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.